All right, it's our second last week of Tell It Again. We've been working through the Old Testament stories and narratives and seeing how they point us to Jesus. Jesus said that all the scriptures point to him and that if we do not see him in those scriptures, they become mere stories to us and do not help our faith. So we're trying again to see Jesus in the story of Samson. Uh, But Samson's story confronts us very blatantly with something that uh, some of the other stories that we've read in this series have confronted us with, and that's that this is not a good story. This is not a good moral tale. Uh, this is not the type of story that ends up being a bedtime story for your children because there's a lot, of, a lot of weird, gross, nasty, evil stuff in this story. I, in fact, looked up uh, in a children's Bible at our ministry center how uh, the children's Bibles t- try to teach this story to children. And I'll be honest with you, I was actually really disappointed. Um, first of all, they soften a lot of the edges of this story. Instead of saying things like the Philistines gouged out Samson's eyes, they'll say, they made him blind. Or instead of saying, he killed a thousand men with a jawbone, they'll say, he struck a thousand men with a jawbone. But what was maybe more disappointing to me than that was in one of the Bibles, there was a prayer for children to say, as they read this story, that they would pray to God that God would make them strong like Samson. And that's unfortunate. Because the story is not about how Samson is good, or how Samson's strength made him a success, or how Samson's strength brought him closer to God. No, at every turn, Samson basically messes up. This story is not going to be about how to be a good person. It's going to be about the grace of God for every person, even people who are multi-murderers, drunken, sex-crazed, misogynistic, arrogant people like Samson. So we're going to say three things in the story today. We're going to see God's grace to Israel, God's grace to Samson, and God's grace to you. Those three points. God's grace to Israel, to Samson, and God's grace to you. So first, uh, God's grace to Israel. This story comes from the book of Judges, which you probably haven't read very recently. It's one of those books that uh, you don't get to usually if you start reading the Bible at Genesis 1-1 because you get bogged down somewhere in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and you just quit and don't get to Judges, which is too bad because if you read that story along with me, you notice there's some really crazy, interesting stuff that happens in this book. The book of Judges historically happens about the years 1300 to 1000 B.C., And in the history of the nation of Israel, this is the time right after they have gotten to the promised land and before the era of the kings. So if you remember, you know, Moses brings the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and they get to the promised land and they set up their society there with God as their ruler. But the people of Israel didn't listen to God. They would regularly ask that other gods be included in their worship along with the true God or simply replace him completely. This was their history for 300 years. And in fact, by the time we get to the story of Samson, a vicious cycle has plagued the nation of Israel for 11 times. That cycle was that the people of Israel would worship the true God, but they would slowly then start to worship other gods, And of course, the true God was not happy with this, so he would bring in a foreign power to overpower them, to either wipe them out or to just oppress them for a time, until the people of Israel would call out and say, God, we're sorry, we repent, and then God would send in a judge who would be sort of a hero-type character um, who would set things right and bring order back to Israel, and they would worship God for a little while until, of course, they would 
fall back into the same cycle. And so this cycle repeats itself again and again in the book of Judges, 11 times before we get to this time with Samson. Now there's something really interesting about this 12th time that we need to notice, though. And that is that the nation of Israel breaks the cycle here, but not the way that you would hope. See, the cycle would normally go, they'd stop worshiping God, foreign power comes in, they call out to God, God sends a judge. But this time with the nation of Philistia, they had stopped worshiping God, so God brought the Philistines in, and then the Israelites didn't call out to God. In fact, if you would go back to Judges 13, you would see all the text says is, and the Israelites again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But there was no call for them, no call from them to God of repentance. That's because Philistia was possibly the most dangerous oppressing power that had come on Israel in the book of Judges, but probably not for the reasons you would think. So the Philistines were a highly technologically advanced society, and they didn't just get that way by osmosis. They would actually, when they took over another nation, would learn everything that that nation had to offer, whether it was in architecture or military or the arts, and they would bring it into their culture by assimilating that nation into their own nation. The Philistines were dangerous because they weren't dangerous. While other nations would come in and completely wipe out a society, kill all the men or kill all the children, the Philistines didn't do that. They actually allowed the Israelites to simply live their life the way that they always had. But they encouraged that the Israelites and the Philistines would intermarry. The cultures could be connected so that there wouldn't be that separation between the two cultures. You can see that actually in the beginning of our story that Samson marries a Timnite woman, right, a Philistine, and her, his parents are not happy with it. Why couldn't you just marry somebody from our nation? The result is the longest oppression in the whole book of Judges, 40 years that the Philistines are over the Israelites, and also the greatest increase in wickedness in the Israelite nation. Now I wonder, is there any parallel between Israel under the Philistines and Christianity in Canada? Not that we're oppressed by the Canadian government or anything like this, but that things have been so okay for so long that we haven't noticed things getting worse. That we might think everything's okay, but really, slowly, sneakily, it's, it's been getting, well, far worse. That the culture has slowly infiltrated itself into the way that we practice Christianity in this continent. And even though we might think we're still practicing Christianity the way that the church has always practiced it, We've adopted, we've assimilated a number of cultural norms from the world outside the church. If you don't believe me, if you think this is sort of like put on your tinfoil hat kind of stuff, let me give you just two examples of how this has happened in the church in North America. The first one is private confession. Some of you come from a Roman Catholic background, so you might remember going to the confessional booth with your priest and confessing your sins. While there are many abuses that come from that, and unfortunately the Roman Catholic Church has turned that into a place to make you make up for your sins, the church actually at large practiced private confession for a long time and in fact hadn't given it up till maybe about 100 years ago. The Lutherans were practicing this. Other Protestant churches were practicing private confession. Not in a booth, but that a person in a congregation would come to their pastor 
and tell them, this is what's going on in my life. Will you first of all forgive me and then show me how to live a more God-pleasing life? The practice, not even 100 years ago, in our church body was that if you wanted to come to communion on a Sunday, you had to go to your pastor's office the day before and announce for communion. You went to your pastor and said, these are the ways that I have sinned, these are the sins that I'm struggling with, and your pastor would forgive you freely with the grace that God has won for you, and then as your spiritual shepherd, your spiritual doctor, lead you down a different path. But our culture has started to teach us a couple things. First of all, that authority isn't worth being listened to. So the role of the pastor has become far less important. But more so than that, it's taught us that we're actually pretty good people. That we're not that bad. Yeah, we've got some rough edges, but overall, everyone's got a good heart. And we can be whatever we want to be and dream to be whatever we want to be. But the unfortunate thing is sin doesn't work like that. It's just as bad now as it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, or even in the time of the judges. Sin continues to infiltrate every aspect of our life. And the unfortunate thing is if we're not regularly dealing with it by bringing it out of the darkness, confessing it and having it forgiven, it does exactly what a disease would do if you don't tell your doctor about it. It'll slowly, surely kill you. Your pastor is a lot like a doctor, by the way. He's not a mind reader. He only knows what you tell him. And while he's given the call to be the spiritual shepherd of this congregation, and I personally have taken a lot of education to be able to do that well, if I don't hear it from you, I don't deal with it. And so I want to challenge you to make that part of your life again. It doesn't necessarily have to be with me, although if I found like three of you who regularly would come to me announce for communion, I would be over the moon. But find somebody in your life to whom you're willing to bring your sins and confess them. When James, in James chapter 5, 16, says confess your sins to one another, I'm pretty sure that means in my pastor brain, confess your sins to one another. So if we're going to leave our sins in the dark and not bring them out and not talk about them, confess them, and have them forgiven, which is the purpose of having a church, those sins are slowly going to kill us. The second way that this has happened in North American Christianity is the influence of pragmatism on the church. North American culture is obsessed with pragmatism. Pragmatism, if you don't know, is basically the idea that if it works, it's good. If it gets the job done efficiently, it's good. If it gets the job done right, it's good. And if you think that's not weird, you're drinking the culture. But the idea of doing things for a certain reason, as, uh, sorry, doing things because they're good, or, sorry, because they're, uh, they work, excuse me, is, has not always been the reason that we do stuff, even in this culture. I mean, you look back a couple hundred years, people did things because, well, it was morally right in their mind or it fit in with their family's values, or they knew in their heart it was the right thing to do. But our culture is obsessed with making more money, saving more time, and doing whatever it takes to get there. Pragmatism. Now, unfortunately, that has infiltrated the church as well. To do what works rather than what's right. This is why you see people in churches worried about who's in what positions and whether they're doing their job the right way whether they're doing their job the way that I would do it. Because in a business, you can just fire that person. 
in a church, well, you can't. But they'll push for that. They'll say, we're going to change your direction. We're going to help you find a different area of service. Rather than doing what the church has always done, which is show mercy to people, rather than try to find justice in the things that are done. It's the same attitude that says, if we just have the right type of music, if we just have the right type of pastor, if we just have the right type of graphics or the right type of building or the right type of whatever, then people are going to start coming to our church. That's pragmatism. And that's not the church. That's business culture. But these things have slowly infiltrated the church, and we haven't even noticed. The nation of Israel was oppressed under Philistia for 40 years, not because it was really dangerous, but because it was really safe. And they started to fall away, certainly not because of any persecution. Which makes me wonder, are we in the same boat? Are we ones who, because it has been so good for so long, have forgotten to focus on the things that Jesus says are most important? Well, you saw what happened to Israel. The oppressing power started to take away not just their culture, but their religion. But that's not the end of the story, right? Because God sent Samson, a judge whom no one asked for. Because two things are very true in this story that you need to remember. The first one is your first fill in the blank. That sin is constant and it is consistent. That God knows that whether we realize it or not, sin is always part of our life. It is trying to find every nook and cranny it can hide in where you will not notice it. But something else is true, and that's your second fill in the blank. That God is constantly and consistently gracious. That even though the nation of Israel did not call out to God, did not repent of their sin, God still sent a judge. And that is the same type of grace that God shows to our church. Even though we may struggle with some of these things, the ways that culture has influenced us to try to run our church a certain way or treat each other a certain way, God still sends us his word. He gives it to us in a book, written down, unchangeable, so that we can go back to it regardless of what culture we're in or what culture we're from and see what it actually says. Let it speak truth into the crazy malaise of what is North American religion today. And let it be true. Brothers and sisters, I pray for our church. Not just our church cross of life, but our church Christianity in Canada. That in many ways we would come to our senses and realize what's been happening around us for the last couple decades. And that we would push ourselves and fellow Christians back to Scripture and what it actually says, because that is the judge that God has provided for us graciously, despite the fact that many of us have not even noticed what the culture is doing. So that's God's grace to Israel. Second, we have God's grace to Samson. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Samson's life, and we're not going to go through all of it detail by detail, um, but I do want you to just consider the overarching theme of his narrative, which is God set him up for success, and he failed at every turn. God gave him everything he could possibly want, and he threw it all away. I mean, just, let's just review like Samson's life from a 30,000-foot view for a second. Remember that Samson was a Nazarite, which he was born into, 
which was a, normally a vow that a, a Christian would take as a, a time of focus on God's word, but God put Samson into it for his whole life. Uh, the Nazarite vow consisted of three parts. First of all, you would not cut your hair because you wanted, no, uh, you wanted to waste no time doing anything to care about your appearance while you were focusing on prayer and the word of God. You would not drink any alcohol because you wanted your mind to be completely sharp as you would focus on the word of God. And finally, you wouldn't touch anything that was dead because that was a way of becoming unclean in the ritual system of the Old Testament Christians. Now, Samson was called to do this his entire life and given amazing strength from the Spirit of the Lord as a result. But remember then what's happen- what happens in Samson's life. He starts by marrying someone who he's not supposed to marry, and the reason is not love or companionship, it's simply selfish. He says to his parents, get that woman for me as my wife because that's the one I want. Then he kills a lion and eats out of it. Remember the no touching dead things? Uh, part of his Nazarite vow. Then he gets married, throws a seven-day feast, which in Philistine culture was a huge, drunken, basically debaucherous orgy. Remember the no drinking thing? Once he's married, his wife betrays him to his people, so he kills 30 men just to pay off the debt. Then he goes back to his wife, not because he loves her, but because he wants to have sex with her, right? I'm going into my wife's room now. Remember that? And when he can't, he retaliates by burning down crops, by taking 300 foxes, tying their tails together, and putting a torch in them. Then he kills a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. And then he has sex with a prostitute. And when he's done, for apparently no reason, rips the city gate off its foundation and moves it. This guy was drunken, sex-crazed, arrogant, misogynistic, self-absorbed. And that's before we get to the whole thing with Delilah. Samson had basically shattered his Nazarite vow There was no reason for God to hold on to him. That's the story of Samson before he gets to Delilah. Now now dig into what he does with Delilah. I'm, again, not going to read the whole story, but remember, Delilah comes to him four times and says, tell me how to tie you up. Tell me how to subdue you. And finally, on the fourth time, Samson tells her, right? We might think to ourselves, what an idiot. Like, he looks pretty savvy at first, right? Like, he's sort of distracting and deflecting the question. Oh, you can do this thing with tie me with the ropes and the bowstrings and whatever. But finally, he just tells her. Just tells her, all you have to do is cut my hair. I'm a Nazarite from birth. God gave me all this great strength. And you think to yourself, what an idiot. There are three reasons why he does that. And they are the next fill in the blanks for you, which we'll walk through. First of all, people do stupid things for sex. Really all Samson wanted was sex with Delilah. Later she'll accuse him of saying, how can you say you love me if you don't tell me the truth? Well, the answer is because he didn't love her. He just wanted her body. Now some of us in the room, we've had something outside of marriage sexually that we're maybe a little bit ashamed of. Maybe a lot ashamed of. Because we were willing to put aside what we knew was right or what we knew was wise for sex. Whether it was before you were married or during your marriage, people do stupid things for sex. But maybe if you've never had a sexual relationship outside of your marriage, you struggle with the two ways that men and women typically struggle with sex, even if they don't have an affair, which is women using your body as an object for men's attention, and men by using pornography. Now, there's overlap in both cases, but typically those are the two, right? 
I'll tell you, women, when you dress scantily, you're essentially saying to men, my body is an object for your pleasure. You can look at it, you can think about it, and if you try hard enough, maybe you can have it. Men, when you watch pornography, it alters your brain chemistry. It actually changes the way you view human beings. They do brain scans on people who watch pornography, and they say that the part of the brain that lights up when you're watching pornography is the part that lights up when you're looking at inanimate objects. Which means that what you see on the screen, your brain thinks, isn't people, it's stuff. And they say that those effects stick with you as your brain starts to reroute your neural pathways. But people will do stupid things for sex. Second reason, Samson is really a coward. You might not think that, based on the fact that he you know, killed a thousand people with a jawbone and ripped a lion apart like it was a piece of paper. But he really was. Because remember what happened. In fact, this happens twice, but more obviously with Delilah. He simply gets so fed up with his nagging woman that he gives in. Now, this isn't just about nagging women. This is about relationships in general, maybe first focused on marriage. The willingness to throw away what is right and what is good for the sake of a false peace in your house. Whether you're a man or a woman, this is something we all struggle with, right? In your home, there might be a disagreement, and you'd rather not deal with it or not repent of your own sin to your spouse or not forgive the other person or hold it against them or whatever it is just so you can get out of that situation. To put a blanket over it and pretend it's not there anymore. That's not right. Most importantly, God has called men to be the leaders in this way. Husbands, you are the ones who are supposed to lead your family not just in making decisions but also in reconciliation and forgiveness. You're the ones called to do the tough job of making sure that things are solved, not just pushed under the rug. But women, you're part of this too. We cannot be cowardly and in our relationships push disagreement under the rug. But even if you're not married, this is something that we deal with, right? Whether it's at your workplace or with your friends, there's either a disagreement about something going on in your life or maybe most specifically something about the way that you practice your religion. And you're more willing to just push away the conversation and say, Ah, you can believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and ra rather than actually dealing with the real issue. Now, I'm not saying you should go on Facebook rants and tell everyone how stupid they are for not being a Christian because that's neither loving nor true. But what I am saying is that if you're going to have conversations with people, you have to have the guts to have those conversations be productive and to not just sweep disagreement or hurt feelings under the rug. Finally, the third reason for Samson's stupidity, he doesn't think anything will actually happen. Think through his life. He was given this Nazarite vow from birth, and he's broken most of it, right? He's drank, and drank himself silly. He's had sex with people he's not supposed to have sex with. He's touched more dead bodies than you've ever seen in your life. And nothing's happened. He hasn't lost his strength. And so when he says to Delilah, you can cut my hair because I'm a Nazarite from birth and I'll lose my strength, he doesn't actually think it's going to happen. The text tells us this, actually, if you'll notice, chapter 16, verses 19 to 20. After putting him to sleep on her lap, Delilah called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and, she began to, and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, right? And what he thought, 
I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Even though he knew his head was shaved, he thought he still had his strength. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's a temptation as Christians, especially Christians who love the free grace of God, to believe that sin isn't that big of a deal. Whether I go out this week and I commit a hundred sins or a thousand sins, it doesn't really matter because I'm forgiven. But this text tells us very clearly that is not the case. While whatever sin you've committed can and is forgiven by God, to think that sin is neutral on your life is a complete lie. I'm sure, if you're like me, there are things in your life that you know are wrong, you know are rebellious, you know are sinful, and yet nothing bad really happens when you do them, so you keep doing it. I think maybe most obviously this happens in our culture when it comes to gossip, right? Gossip is easy to do. No one seems to get hurt, especially not me. The Bible says, and God says very clearly, that is wicked. And you notice what happens to Samson, right? Time after time, he sins again and again, but nothing bad happens, so he keeps going until one day he realizes the Lord has left him. Now, this is not because God had become unfaithful to Samson, but that Samson had become unfaithful to God. Samson again and again had pushed God away and said, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. Until finally, God said, okay, have it your way. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are two types of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Samson had transferred into the second of those categories. And it all happened without him even noticing. See, the sad truth is that sin acts on our life even though we are forgiven. Christianity is a battle all the time against sin. Yes, we are freely forgiven by God, but sin still rears its ugly head and tries to pull us back down. And it may not be that your gossip or whatever sin it is is pulling you away from Christ right now, but it can. And it might not be pulling you away from Christ right now, but it may be pushing others away from Christ right now. I know as I have conversations in our congregation, I hear about gossip. I know that there are Christians who love Jesus, love grace, and even if they have sinned against another person, want to reconcile that sin. But because it's gossip, they don't know who to talk to or what to talk about. Could it be that our gossip, even though it doesn't seem like it's hurting anything, is actually tearing apart the fabric of who we are as a congregation? Maybe we won't notice, but sin has that effect. Now, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, because there might be some unresolved things in your life, that's good. That's what the law is supposed to do. That's what the story of Samson should do. It should remind you that even though you maybe have not slain a thousand people with a jawbone, you are just as sinful and just as capable as Samson was of falling away from God. But the beauty of the story is that Samson comes back. Not by his own reason or strength, but by the fact that God completely broke him down to the end of himself. You remember the end of the story where Samson calls out to God, remember me, 
And the book of Hebrews then later tells us that, fi- that Samson was commended for his faith. But there are two things that we need to learn then about this story. Because if we at all resonate with the story of Samson in our sinfulness, then I hope we can also resonate with these two things about the story of Samson for the positive. And that is the first of two ways to avoid being stupid like Samson. First of all, get in community. If you're reading the text, you notice that some people are absent after the first couple verses. Anyone from Samson's life. His life as an Israelite. His family, his friends. He throws it all away and goes rogue by himself. The Bible says this time and time again, not just in the story of Samson. If you're not in a Christian community, you're putting yourself in grave danger. The Bible talks about Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you know how lions operate? They try to pick off those who are away from the pack. So get in community. Because community can do a couple things for you. First of all, it can hold you accountable. It can watch out for things in your life that maybe you aren't seeing. It can push you back to the things that can actually change your heart, namely the word and the sacraments of God. But second, it gives you also the opportunity to watch out for people in that community. A good community is one where you have people who you are leading and who you are being led by. People whom you look to and say, that's the Christian life I want to emulate. And people who you think to yourself, I want to love this person as hard as I can because they ha- I have something that I want them to have. And we have an awesome way that you can do this. They're called our life groups, our small groups that we do in our congregation, which I'm going to talk about more at the end of the service. But I'll just give you this plug. Get in a small group. Get in one of our life groups and find Christian community. Because there, you can guard against what, Satan, what Samson fell into. The second of those is to ask God to remember you. When Samson is between the two pillars at the festival of Dagon, where everyone's celebrating the fact that they finally caught Samson, Samson says this amazing prayer. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Maybe those words ring a bell for you from another story of the Bible where Jesus hung on a cross and the man uh, hanging next to him said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me is a prayer of complete submission and humility before one whom you believe to be gracious. It's not a prayer of, God, give me my best life now. God, fix this problem for me. God, heal my illness. No, it's just, God, remember me. And that is the key to a Christian life that avoids the same stupidity that Samson fell into. A life that is constantly going back to God with a humility that says, I have nothing to offer you, God, and my life has not been exemplary, but would you please remember me because you are gracious. That level of practice of spiritual discipline and humility will give you an amazing peace because your life won't depend on you anymore. It will depend on the one who will remember you. The second fill in the blank, if you haven't already filled it in, is to ask God to remember you. Brothers and sisters, some of you need to hear this today. That it's time to ask God to remember you. Whether it's been a big thing or a little thing in your life that you're running away from God and doing what is not right in his sight, 
I want you to know this, and I want you to tune in for this last fill in the, or the second last fill in the blank. It's never too late to call out to God. Whatever your life has been like for the last six months or six years or six decades, it's never too late to call out to God. Samson blew up his entire life, but it wasn't too late for him to call out to God. He killed people, hurt people, took advantage of people, but it was never too late for him to call out to God. And today, if that's you, ask God to remember you. We're going to have some time in the service where you can just bring your prayers to God, silently in your heart. Say those words to him if you have to. Lord, remember me. And he will. That's God's grace to Samson. Finally, God's grace to you. Did you notice that step by step, Samson is a picture of Jesus? Maybe you didn't. You're thinking to yourself, Samson's actually like a complete failure. There's no way he's a picture of Jesus. And if that's what you thought, well, you're on the right track. Let me tell you the story of Samson with Jesus in the background. Samson starts by getting a wife from another nation against better judgment. He does this because he's selfish. But Jesus comes into the world as a Jew in order to save people from every language, tribe, people, and nation. And he did it because he was selfless. Samson killed a lion so that he could eat. But Jesus defeated our enemy, Satan, who is called a roaring lion, who was trying to eat us. Samson was handed over to the ruling power by his own people just to get the opportunity to break the bonds and attack his enemies. But Jesus was bound by his own people and handed over to the ruling power, and yet he did not open his mouth and let them attack him. Samson was the one who said, I merely did to them as they did to me. But Jesus was the one who said, do to others as you would have them do to you. Samson was tempted four times by Delilah and eventually gave in. But Jesus was tempted four times by Satan and did not give in. Samson was shackled in chains and mocked in public until he asked God that he might stretch out his hands and die with his enemies. But Jesus was chained and mocked in public until he stretched out his arms and died for his enemies. When Samson died, he delivered his people for a short time until they fell into sin again. But when Jesus died, you were delivered from sin, death, and the devil forever. And the text said about Samson that he killed many more when he died than when he lived. But the Bible says about Jesus, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You could even say he saved more when he died than while he lived. Samson is the antithesis of Jesus. He is the picture of Jesus in opposite world, if you will. Or the way that I have you written, writing it down in your notes if you're taking notes with us. Jesus, or Samson is the photo negative of Jesus. You ever seen a photo negative? All the colors are reversed. The picture is the same, but it's opposite. That's Samson. He's the picture of your Savior who was faithful at every turn and gave up his life not to kill but to rise to life. And that grace has been passed on to you through the word that is preached to you, through the word that's written down for you to read. See, in the story, Samson was selfish, sinful, and worthy to be abandoned by God. But we know that because of what Jesus did in our place, we will not be abandoned. We are seen as worthy. We are loved and accepted by God in heaven. And that God will not ask us to give our lives for anyone but he's going to give us the life of his son so that we can live forever. This is a, a message that's completely counterintuitive and completely opposite of anything else you're going to hear in the world. 
Everywhere else asks you to do it yourself and do it for yourself. But Christianity says gloriously, you can't, and that's perfect because Jesus did it for you. If today is the day where you need to call out to God to remember you, I pray that you do that. And if today is a day where you're overwhelmed by this message, I hope that you'll tell this story again. The story of a faithful Savior who stepped into your place to save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see Samson and we see everything that is wrong with the world and with us. But we also see in the background the shadow that he casts into the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you bring that picture of Jesus more vividly to our eyes so that we're overwhelmed by it. We ask that you remember us, whether we've been Christians for our whole lives or never been Christians before. We ask that you would remember us. By the grace that you offered through Jesus Christ, save us eternally. We ask those things in your name. Amen.